there are many organizations that see the twofold problem that exists in the world that there are people who can't afford or don't have access to food as well as the massive amount of food that is unused and therefore stored unnecessarily or even thrown out these organizations like one here in Canada simply called the leftovers foundation have made it their mission to what they call rescue and redirect food to those who not only can use it, but to those who desperately need it. Did you know in ancient Israel, when God instituted his law, he made similar provisions? Not primarily to avoid wasted food, but because he cares deeply to the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the outcast. These laws are explained a few different times in a few different ways, but just so that we can keep our finger on the pulse uh, as it will guide us this morning. Uh, I'll be reading just briefly from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 21, for an example of one of these laws. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so thinking about this law and laws like this can help us as we consider Ruth chapter 2. Now this might be a tricky one. We'll try to lob it out and see what happens. Does anyone remember the word that was repeated 12 times in Ruth chapter 1? Does anyone remember the word? Sean said return, but we lean heavily on Dan so we can, he can be heard. That's great. Return, you're right. That's exactly the word. That's very impressive, Sean. Uh, return. Here in chapter 2, we find another word that's repeated 12 times. And the word is to glean or gleaning. Now this word uh, is the word that's used to talk about this merciful provision that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 24. That the leftover sheaves in the field shouldn't be gathered up but that they would be left for those who need it most. Now this word doesn't quite have the same big idea thrust as return did in chapter 1. But it is a really helpful word and we'll see it kind of guide us through our whole passage. Again, it's repeated lots of times. That's a good time. Anytime we see a word repeated a whole bunch of times in the Bible, that should tell us to pay attention. But as we consider gleaning, it'll help us understand this passage as a whole. Because the fact that Ruth goes out to glean, don't worry, we'll get here, but the fact that she does go out to glean demonstrates her and Naomi's continued desperation, their continued need. Remember, their husbands have died. They are on their own, even now after returning to the promised land. And we see that in her gleaning, she is trusting in God to provide for them what they need. They need refuge. And the hope is that in this gleaning, they will find it. We'll also see that as good and necessary as food is, that's what the, the, this provision was for, that they would not starve to death, there is still a hope that Naomi and Ruth have, that God will continue to take care of them, continue to give them refuge. And so our big idea from Ruth chapter 2 is stealing from some of the language that we see right in chapter 2, and we'll unpack it. 
as we look at Ruth and Naomi's life, this kind of episode in the game, and we'll consider what it means for us today. So our big idea from Ruth chapter 2 is this. Find refuge under the safety of God's wings. A little bit metaphorical, but we'll get into it. Find refuge under the safety of God's wings. Talked about last week how Ruth is divided up in our Bibles into four chapters, and we're going to kind of consider those four chapters as four episodes. Episode one was the return this morning, episode two, the refuge. Let's listen as I read from God's holy and true word, an ancient story of God's provision and mercy that is for us today. When I finish reading, I'll say, This is God's word. And if you believe that to be true, I would encourage you to say out loud, thanks be to God. This is not to be ritualistic. It's a reminder for you to remind yourself and remind those around you that this really, truly is God's word for us today. So let's hear Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young women not to, or the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you For what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. And he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundle for her, leave it for her, 
to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name in whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. There is so much goodness in Ruth chapter 2. The desperate situation that Ruth and Naomi found themselves in begins to turn in great ways. But it doesn't start that way. It doesn't start on a positive note. Within the first few verses, we see that Ruth and Naomi need help. They need refuge. So this will be our first point this morning as we consider Ruth chapter 2, refuge needed. Let's refresh our memory. What happened in Ruth chapter 1? There's a famine in Bethlehem, so what does Elimelech do? He packs up his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, uh, and they go to Moab. His sons, Malon and Kilion, they get married to Moabite women. But within the first few verses of the book, we see that tragedy strikes. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, they all die. Leaving behind their three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Childless and desperate. And so what do they do? Well, they set out to return to Bethlehem. Naomi convinces Orpah to turn back, to go back to Moab. And we don't get any real answers what happened to Orpah, but she goes back. She kisses her mother and goes back. Ruth, though, isn't as easily convinced. We see that valiant speech that she gives her mom near the end of chapter 1. She says, I will not leave you no matter what. We see this costly devotion, a costly decision to devote herself to Naomi and to her God. And it's a desperate and bad situation. But if you remember, there was this lingering hope at the end of chapter 1. Not only that Ruth will not leave Naomi, but that they made it back to Bethlehem. The land of food that was at one time without food, a famine, but we see that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. So there is hope. There's hope in the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. We're also introduced to a new character right away. The narrator gives us a little bit of an understanding. Another character involved here we see. Who is that? Boaz, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And so we see that he is a worthy man. Now what does this mean to be a worthy man? This term can mean different things. It could speak of wealth. It could speak of character. It could speak of status. Maybe it speaks of all three. 
But if this is the first time you are hearing the story this morning, or if this is the first time that you heard the story at all, it's simply filling in the details. We're getting insight on who some of the characters are. But I think a helpful reminder for us is that this verse 1 of chapter 2 is not yet part of the dialogue between Naomi and Ruth. So to our knowledge, Ruth has no idea who Boaz is. We just get this little insight. Oh, just so you know, there's a worthy man, the clan of Elimelech, named Boaz. And we might start to wonder, what role is this guy going to play? And so even with these few threads of hope, their problems are not gone. To be honest, the majority of their problems are still very much problems, big problems. They are childless widows in a time of significant corruption and sin. They desperately need refuge on multiple levels. And the most pressing just in the moment here is food. Now, verse 2 could be read as sort of a friendly exchange between Naomi and Ruth, where Naomi or Ruth could essentially be, we could read it as saying, I'm going to just go out, Mom, and get some bread, you know, from the grocery store. Just like a domestic interaction. I don't think that's the way we should read it, as we consider the, the desperation that it would mean to go out and glean. For Ruth to go out and glean gives significant clues to their circumstances. They are desperate. And they are starving. They are desperate and they are starving. And although there are provisional laws in place that we considered that would allow them to find some food, to find some support, to find some refuge, this is still comparable for us to what we would imagine someone picking through, you know, the dumpster behind the grocery store or going to the dump to find food. This is hot hard and not necessarily safe work there's a lot of questions that are left after verse two i'm going to go out and glean well what what does that tell us you know would the landowners abide by the laws that allow for gleaning would she remember a foreign widow be an open target for assault alone in a field again this is during the days of the judges you may remember from the very first verse of the book not exactly the pinnacle of a moral society. And so in order to feed her and to feed Naomi, what does Ruth do again? She counts the cost. She's motivated by the incredibly powerful recipe of love and desperation. But she's certainly walking into a dangerous and grueling situation. She's walking into the dangerous unknown. She demonstrates again great love for Naomi and great trust that God's people will live according to God's law. Ruth hangs on to this hope. And there is hope. They need refuge. But they trust that God will provide. And we see this with Ruth at the beginning. She, she hopes that someone will show her grace. Someone will, you know, she'll find favor in someone's eyes. Someone will see her desperation. And we read the passage. We know what happens next, which will be our second point. Refuge found. Refuge found. I love how the author paints this scene. Look with me at verse 3. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. What a just lovely coincidence. A literal translation could be something along the lines of as chance chanced. 
That's sort of the, that's the, that's the vibe of this so happened. For us, maybe a modern day way of saying it would be as luck would have it, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. We see no grand vision. She doesn't have a dream about where to go. We see no explicit divine intervention. But we see as this story unfolds, God's sovereignty is in action. Now, kids, there's a big word, sovereignty. When I talk about God's sovereignty, I need you to listen to this because your parents are going to ask this afternoon, what is sovereignty again? I want you guys to be able to tell them. What is God's sovereignty? When I say God's sovereignty, I mean God's absolute control. God is absolutely in control over everything. God is not like us, and that is a good thing. Often we think we have all sorts of control over the things in the world. We think we have all sorts of control over the things in our life. That there is so much that's outside of our control. But that statement is not true for God. An amazing truth is that God is absolutely in control over everything. Our brains can't comprehend it. But that is good news. It is amazing how as we sing, he holds the whole world in his hand. So sovereignty, that's our first big word. Now grown-ups, pay attention. This one's for you. Providence. Here's another one. Providence. A simple way of explaining what the providence of God is, is I would say this. Here's my simple definition. God's sovereignty in action. God's sovereignty in action. God is in control over everything. And so when he does something, when he does something, it is his sovereignty in action. That is divine providence. So two big words, sovereignty and providence. And here, I think in Ruth chapter 2, we see a few good examples of God's providence, his sovereignty in action. God is always at work, even when we don't see it. Even when our minds would maybe prefer to call it coincidence. Maybe that's, maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. I don't know. I'd lean on the coincidence side. Well, call it what you want. But this is God's sovereignty in action. It's God's providential working that brings Ruth to the right field. Now, friend, we certainly don't always understand God's providence. I think 99.9% of the time we don't even notice God's providence, the things that he's doing. But isn't it a comforting thought? To know that God is always working. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, that he works for our good and for his glory. Just food for thought. Imagine how much we'll specifically be able to thank God and praise him for in eternity when our faith is turned to sight. When we can see with greater clarity all the amazing ways that God has worked providentially in our lives. So here, Ruth finds refuge. She trusts in God, and we see that God works to make it happen. Then immediately after, we see another coincidence. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Behold is not a common English word, but there's no real effective translation from the, the Hebrew word that we translate to behold. If you had to translate it, it might be something along the lines of, hey, look, or pay attention. An old-fashioned way, and some trans- translations do render it this way, but I actually think it's probably the most helpful for this context, is lo and behold. And so the way we read it, lo and behold, Boaz shows up. Again, you can call it coincidence, but I'm going to call it God's providence. The first 
words that we hear from Boaz are a blessing and a greeting to his workers in the field. And he talks to his foreman. He gets a bit of a lowdown on who Ruth is. And then we see one answer is already given to us of a question that we've been waiting to see answered. Ruth has been shown kindness. She's been allowed by the law and by those working in Boaz's field, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that she's been able to safely glean behind the reapers. She's been able to find food. So Boaz then turns to Ruth, and from his words, you can tell he knew more that was going on about Ruth than just what the foreman had told her. He's got a bit more of a finger on the pulse in the situation. But here, when he starts talking to Ruth, we start to see remarkable kindness shown by Boaz. Remarkable kindness is really what characterizes the entire book of Ruth. Remarkable kindness from Ruth to Naomi. Remarkable kindness from Boaz to Ruth. Remarkable kindness from God to humanity. We see this kindness here that Boaz shows to Ruth is far beyond and above the, the call of duty. And so first, what does he do? Well, he offers her safety. He tells her to stay in his field, to continue gleaning, stay close to his workers. He promises that he's charged the young men there not to touch her. It's kind, right? He's saying, stay here. It'll be safe. But then more even, what does he do? He offers her water, a drink from what his workers have drawn up. More even, we see a few verses later that he offers her food. Not just food to gather up, but food in the context of a meal. Remember, she is a foreigner, a stranger, a starving widow, and she invites him, her to come and eat with his workers. He passes her food, she eats until she's full, and she gets the ancient Near East equivalent of a takeout box to bring home to Naomi. And more even, when she gets back to work, Boaz tells his workers to let her come up and glean not just the leftovers, but right up among the sheaves. It just keeps getting better and better. And then more even, what does he do? He tells his workers to pull out some of the bundles and leave them for her. Specifically for her. That she can gather them up. That she can just take them. Right? It's like, whoops, drop that one. Oh, I guess that one's for you. He has gone from obedient, legal, you know, obligation to polite charity to full-blown, sacrificial, loving kindness, even at great cost to himself. He is demonstrating genuine compassion and love. And it may not seem like it at first glance, but more even is the prayer that he prays for her in Ruth uh, chapter 2, verses 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He prays that not only he, but much more significantly, God would give her refuge under his wings. This is common biblical imagery. We see it all the time. This under the shadow of a wing or, or safety under wings. This is imagery that maybe reminds us of a bird protecting their young, shielding those that they love with themselves. Totally coincidental. Call it providential. You know, what a beautiful image on Mother's Day. Under the shadow of wings. Now God doesn't literally have wings that cover us. 
but in ways beyond our comprehension, he gives us this kind of refuge. And it is through his amazing providence that he gives refuge. And through other people in this case. Boaz here is an agent of God's kindness. He is an agent of God's provision to Ruth, even at great cost to Boaz. And so just to dip out of the narrative for a second here, I think a really helpful question for us to ask, I don't think this is the main point of the text, but this is an important point of the Bible. Do we love people like this? Do we even love the people closest to and most like us? Do we do it like this? Do we love the outsider? Do we love the widows? Do we love the orphan? Do we love the hungry? Do we love the needy? Do we love the rejected? Why should we love like this? Well, because John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he, God, first loved us. This isn't optional. But we fail to obey this command constantly. Look at the way we even treat each other. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples. How? By our love for one another. We have been shown undeserved, unbelievable mercy, love, compassion beyond comprehension. But too often we only love in the bare minimum sense. And we only love if it's advantageous to us. It's so rare that we go above and beyond the call of duty as Boaz demonstrates. But look at the examples throughout the whole Bible. Look at the early church in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We see nobody goes without. They take care of each other. We see in Acts 6, the church comes together. They appoint men to give oversight to the distribution of food so that the widows won't go without. Look at every other New Testament letter that's saturated with the one another command. Love one another. Be tenderhearted and kind to one another. Just as God in his remarkable kindness has been kind to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Live in harmony with one another. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This is costly love. All real love is costly. Not only that, the Bible's extremely clear of how what we're not supposed to do. We are to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Friends, if you are here this morning and you're hearing my words, don't let the poisonous weed of cynicism or bitterness or grumbling take root in your life. It will take over. What if Boaz was like this? What if his default reaction was cynicism? Ah, maybe Ruth's trying to take advantage of me. She's trying to take advantage of my kindness. Maybe she's going to take the grain that I give her and turn a profit and use it for who knows what. Of course not. Now, genuine love is wise, but it's not peppered with qualifiers. He is kind, and he is therefore showing kindness. He is specifically an agent of God's kindness. Isn't it good that God doesn't deal with us in that cynical way? The reason I'm talking about relationships in the church and in our homes is that should be the easiest place to start. We need to pray and ask God for help in this. But hear me clearly, the Bible doesn't stop there. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. Love your enemies even. Love those who need love. A rapid-fire survey of biblical texts should open our eyes to make this clear that this is true. Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor or weak. Proverbs 14, whoever opposes, uh, oppresses the poor insults their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Zechariah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And finally, James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Can we even name an orphan or a widow, let alone visit and care for them? Let's ask God for his help and be obedient to demonstrating sacrificial love in and outside the church from the greatest to the least. And how does Ruth respond to this amazing love? Well, we see right away humility. Even near the beginning, before things really ramp up, she just gets a glass of water and she falls on her face. She is the opposite of entitled. She acknowledges, I'm a foreigner. I'm not even one of your servants. So she responds in humility. And we see she also continues to work faithfully and lovingly. She doesn't just take this hand out and bolt. She doesn't try to take advantage of Boaz's kindness, but she continues to count the cost of faithful obedience and love. And what else? We see humility, we see faithful work, and then we see she receives unmerited favor. She is being an amazing daughter-in-law. We can all affirm that. But even her righteousness doesn't earn the kind of favor that she is receiving. She's been given a gift that she simply doesn't deserve. And so after this full day, refuge is found. She ends up with an ephah of barley. How much is an ephah of barley? Your footnotes in your Bible probably tell you something like 22 liters. I don't know, picture a bag of dog food. It's a lot. Certainly it's enough for a few weeks of food for Naomi. Pretty good for a day's work. So she goes home. Naomi sees all the barley. She sees that takeout container from the meal. And what does Ruth say? She says, happy Mother's Day. Kids, make sure you get your mom an ephah of barley today. No, Naomi is shocked. And she asks, in verse 19, uh, Naomi says, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name in whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Refuge was needed. Refuge has been found. 
But here we see that clues are given that the story isn't over. This is great news, but as much as a few weeks worth of food is amazing, there's a certain level of refuge that is still needed. There's something that's still hoped for. And that will be our third and final point this morning, refuge hoped for. And so look with me at what Naomi says next. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughters, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Naomi knows more of what's going on here than Ruth, of just the kind of providential work that God has been up to. Boaz is not only a worthy, wealthy, successful, and noble man. Boaz is not only a man who demonstrates immense kindness, but he is one of their redeemers. This is not common language for us. So what is Naomi talking about? Here we find just a massive hope bomb dropped in the text. Again, the more we know about the laws that God has instituted for his people in this context, the more it can help us here. And there's a lot to consider, but just briefly for us this morning. God's law made provisions that if tragedy were to strike and a, a woman's husband was to die, all hope was not lost. Close male relatives were to step in and care in all sorts of ways, not just practical, but even in super generous ways. Ruth and Naomi were facing, remember we considered this last week, and felt the tension. They were you know, facing the reality of extinction of their family line. I want us to feel the weight of that this morning. So much hope was built in, in their continuing legacy, their family continuing on. And at this point, you know, prospects are not good. But all hope was not lost because close relatives were known as kinsmen redeemers and they were called to to step up, to share responsibility, to care for the needs of the oppressed. In this case, to care for the needs of Ruth and Naomi. Specifically, uh, an example would be leveret marriage. It's a strange concept to us, I understand that. It was even a way for a brother of a, a deceased man, it, the brother could then marry the widow, and if they had a son, that son would actually become the heir to the deceased man. Again, super strange to our ears, but deep mercy for the hopeless in this case. And so the wheels are turning for Naomi, right? She's thinking, ah, oh, man, there's some hope here. In episode one, we saw a broken woman. In episode two, we find a woman who has found refuge in God's provision as hope even for more refuge. Could Boaz be the one to offer more hope? Could he continue to be an agent of God's kindness? Could he even be the answer to the prayer that he prays for Ruth in verse 12? The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Some of this we'll have to wait and see as the narrative unrolls over these next few weeks, but the arc that we see here this morning of refuge needed Refuge found and refuge hoped for is essentially the arc of the Christian life. We need refuge. 
Our sin weighs heavily on us. We are left, therefore, as poor spiritual orphans. And so the first step in finding refuge is acknowledging that we ourselves need refuge. We are in need of rescue. We also find refuge. That's the hope of the gospel. Here in, in Ruth, Ruth's hope was in God's mercy, merciful provisions of these laws, but it was also, you know, this, this glimmer of hope that she had that someone would step up, that someone would care for her in this way. This morning, our hope lies in the mercy that God offers us, which is a sure hope. The hope is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God would send his own son into the world when he looks at our sin and our rebellion and our depravity, he would look and say, something needs to be done. He would stretch out his own hand to save his people. And so he would send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfectly sinless life, to live the life that you and I could never live, yet to die the death that you and I deserve for our sin. He took our place so that on him the weight of humanity's sin would fall on his shoulders and amazingly he did not stay dead he rose demonstrating that god's just wrath against sin had been satisfied and because of that we could therefore find refuge we needed refuge and we have found refuge in christ ruth needed god's people to be obedient to god's law for her to glean the leftovers we have christ who is perfectly obedient to go to the cross so that you and I aren't only invited to pick at the crumbs under the table, we are invited to a place at the table. Boaz's kind dealings were more than generous, more generous than even Ruth deserved. In our desperate need, friends, we come empty, but we go away full. God has dealt bountifully with us. He is rich in mercy and love. The love of Christ is beyond comprehension. Ruth comes humbly. She faithfully serves, and what does she get? She reserves unmerited favor. To come to Christ means we have to come humbly. We need to acknowledge our desperate need of refuge. We need to turn from our sin and follow Christ completely, letting him be the Lord of your life and therefore to receive unmerited favor to be credited with his righteousness and receiving adoption as God's child. Friend, if you are here this morning and you know that you need refuge and that's where the story ends for you, I want to tell you there is refuge that can be found and that refuge is in Christ alone and that is a gift of grace. Grace means you, a gift that you don't deserve yet is freely given. If that's you here this morning, Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ alone and his righteousness. Today could be that day for you where you find refuge. And still, as if that news wasn't good enough, there's hope for future refuge. Ruth and Naomi were enjoying the first fruits of God's kindness to them, showed by Boaz. They have food, they have safety, but there's still a need. Right, the story's not over, but they aren't left hopeless. The Bible 
talks about how when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, to give us assurance, to sanctify us, to intercede on our behalf, and more. And that the Holy Spirit is for us the first fruits or a down payment of the hope to come. This hope is and forever will be Christ. As we come with the weight of our sin, the weight of our need for refuge, and in Christ we find refuge at unfathomable cost to God. The Father, he poured out his wrath against sin, not on us, but on Christ, God the Son. This was beyond moral obligation. This was beyond duty. What we deserve is death, but what we receive if we come humbly, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ is life. We find refuge. And we not only find refuge for today, but we long for the day when our faith will be turned to sight and we will be with God forever, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sin. Ruth 2 is a foreshadowing of the gospel and a reminder for us this morning of the unmerited favor that we have in Christ. Christian, he is our refuge. And so in just a minute, after we share in the Lord's Supper, we will be singing a song called Jesus Strong in Times. We've sung it lots of times here before. It's a simple song, but a song that to me, in the course of four simple verses and a chorus, tells this beautiful story of our need for rescue, our need to go to Christ. Now, I knew this song. Maybe this is you here this morning. I knew this song. I even liked it. You know, my kids liked it. It's a good song. It's catchy. It's simple. But I missed the best part until I saw all the lyrics together on the bulletin because, you know, instead of just a verse in isolation, I missed, I think, the point that it is filled with glorious truths in each verse that we should go to Christ and that we can go to Christ. That is profound truth. But the fourth fourth verse, something changes. And the amazing hope that we have in the first three verses becomes an even more amazing hope. Let me read the words of the song. It says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. But listen here where things change. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. Friend, if you are thirsty, weak, fearful, or lost, come to Jesus for refuge. Trust in God's sovereign provision. And especially rest in the fact that it is not your merit, it is not your ability to come to him that is your refuge. But God's unfathomable love is shown to us in Christ. Who will come to you? Who has come for you to give you safety under his wing? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the amazing hope that is Christ. That it's not 
even our faith that saves us, that the tightness of our grip, but that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's not how tight that grip is, but the strength of the one we hold on to. And so we thank you for Christ, the amazing sacrifice that made a way for us to find refuge. God, remind us of the weight of our sin, but remind us even more the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice as we share in the bread and cup and consider this amazing truth that we need refuge, but we found refuge and we hope for even further refuge. God, we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing. We thank you for this story from so long ago. From Ruth chapter 2. It is a foreshadowing for us of the refuge that we can find in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.